0: This is one of those passages that I'm sure you all read ahead, so when you like read ahead you go what in snarf land could you possibly pull out of this particular text? It's one of those texts that you would read through and go great God I don't really know why you put that there. It was nice information. Let's move on. But and that's how I sometimes approach and go wow Holy Spirit better really show up this time because there ain't much there. And what happens uh, or you'll find this passage that it is just uh, snarfalicious. It is so Awesome, and um, yeah, I know, I use snarf a lot, because it's better than a lot of other words, and it's mine. So, the reality is, it's a great passage, and I I just want to encourage you to understand that God doesn't waste words. That every passage, as boring or obscure or just, you know, uh, I guess, not unexciting as it might be, is powerful and meaningful and intended for use to strengthen our faith, and it's no different with this. So, by way of review, so as we understand where we're going. Uh, last week, we saw how Joshua fulfilled uh, his promise to a people who had deceived him into giving it, and that was the, the Gibeonites. And since Joshua was more concerned with upholding the honor of God and making sure God's character was uh, protected and, and glorified, he Um, instead of protecting his own reputation, which had been humbled by breaking his promise, he protected God's, and he humbly goes out and fulfills his commitment fully. This bad decision he made because he didn't get the counsel of God. And because God's man proved willing, because he proved willing to do and follow what God had commanded him to do, God here proves himself Faithful. And so the first half of Joshua 10 is this amazing, unbelievable battle between five kings. And I'll name them so we know who we're talking about the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So there's five kings. So having won this battle by the help of God, throwing down these huge hailstones and extending the day and all these things, by having won, he brings these five kings who had hit out in a cave before the leaders of uh, Israel. And he says, Put your basically feet on their necks, on their heads, and stand there representing the defeat um, of these kings and really pointing toward when Christ would ultimately put his foot on the head of Satan and crush it on the cross, fulfilling what had been told in Genesis chapter 3. So that's what it's a picture of, always pointing towards Christ, even back in Joshua. And so the passage ends with the execution of these kings, and so... This is kind of the first real battle in the whole southern part of Israel. And it's really the last battle that we get full details of in the rest of the book of Joshua. The remainder of the battles are kind of short summaries. So the second half of Joshua 10 summarizes the capturing of the people of these five kings who came up to battle Gibeon. And so it's the continuation uh, and the end, if you will, of this, this battle. So the kings are dead... But what you see in, in verse 20 of Joshua 10 we saw last week is that the people of their cities ran back, got in the fortified cities, and Joshua basically left them there, and they said that no one would speak ill of Israel. So they're sitting in their, in their cities, silent, quiet, hoping that Joshua will just kind of go away and maybe forget that they are there. And, but Joshua can't do that. And Joshua doesn't do that because, first of all, if he, if he does do that, he'll be disobeying God. Secondly, silence, and this is where you start seeing, okay, how could this this picture that Joshua conquering these armies ever apply to me? We need to understand that just because sin is silent doesn't necessarily mean it's fully conquered. It's very easy when, when you know, I've met people, honestly, they kind of confess a full addiction and and you start talking through, and it's like, oh, we got it all out, and because they feel good, and they suddenly are, have this commitment to purity and whatever addiction might be, and they kind of forget to battle because they think because they're not struggling in that first two weeks that they actually, you know, have come forward with it, that suddenly the battle is won. And that's not the case. And so these guys are sitting in their city silent, very easy for Joshua to kind of go, well, yeah, they're conquered, but they're not. And so as I've said from the beginning, You need to look at the book of Joshua not as a book of war in the land, though that certainly is what's happening. It is a picture of uh, the war for a purity of worship in all the land, and particularly in, in our hearts is what it's pointing towards. And so the picture that we get here is a picture of this big theological word called sanctification. And it's different than justification, where you are saved, justified, declared innocent... And even righteous by God, positionally, you are adopted in the family. But then there's the sanctification, which is called life. And life is that process where we're becoming more and more like Jesus. And this is what the picture looks like, where we are constantly fighting for the purity of worship. If you ever sin, but I'm sure you never do. If you ever sin, you'll see that you are not pure, I am not pure. We are constantly battling for purity. And we will forever battle, too. We're dead. Sorry if that's not hope. Hopeful, but that's the truth. Hopefully you'll be fighting less and less, but you will be fighting constantly. And so, if this book had a cool title for today, it would maybe be called, like, Sin Never Sleeps. Because sin doesn't ever sleep, and it's not just because it's silent means it's conquered. So, if Joshua leaves and lets these guys go, and just kind of like forgets them, and goes on to other battles of guys that are maybe more in their face, he will, as you and I will, leave the door open... Just a little crack, maybe, for idolatry to creep in, and eventually it will blow that door open and destroy them all. And Joshua knows that. And so he has a lot more work to do, and this is where we see in Joshua 10:28, him continue on to defeat the kings and their people. Well, the king's are already dead, but the people of those kings. So verse 28 says this, and we'll read through uh, 39. As for Macada, now Makeda is where they had put the kings in the caves and where they had executed them, so that's why it starts there. As for Macada, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king and the edge of the sword, and he devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Macada to Libna. And fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel, and he struck it with the edge of the sword, and every person in it, and he left none remaining in it, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish, and laid siege to it, and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and every person in it, as he had done to Libna. Then Horam king of Gezer came up to help Lachish and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Verse 34 Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on the day, on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword and he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it, he left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction, every person in it. Verse 38, Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Deborah and fought against it, and he captured it with its king and all its towns, and they struck him with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction, every person in it. And he left none remaining as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king, and so we did to Deborah and to its king. Okay, so you can go ahead and put that map up. Uh, I should say map up there. Um, I think we have it. Do we have it? Yes? Good. All right, I'll, we'll use that. Just leave it up there for a couple of minutes. So in what reads like somewhat of an effortless campaign, he goes and defeats these seven uh, different cities, some that were connected with the five kings and others that just were on the way and still in the land that they were supposed to conquer. And every battle that they go to uh, with these cities is uh, probably not all of the battles they fought, but probably represents the entire uh, seven, uh, kind of being this perfect number, represents the southern region has been conquered after they conquer all these major cities. And you see that each battle is fought successively and then fought uh, pretty uniquely and then fought uh, till it's done or till it's finished. So couple things that you learn from this as you see it not only as joshua just conquered land but as a picture of sanctification so kind of keep those two ideas in joshua and israel fight each battle as it comes so kind of kind of in order if you will now if you see um, you have to look kind of at uh, the cities and match them up but you'll see where they start where bethel and, and i are right there in kind of the lower third of the picture you see jericho over there in jordan And so, Gibeon was just to uh, the west of it, and that's where the king, oh, hey, where'd that come from? That's pretty fantastic. Gibeon's where they all came up to fight. And so, as you go down the south, you'll see they hit each city, and that's, they're just hitting whatever city comes next uh, in order. And they do um, kind of do a detour with Debur and, and go over, but it's basically a pretty successive battle after battle after battle. And so, it's... They're fairly strategic in their fighting, and what I mean is they're they're not reactionary, they're not just randomly fighting whoever they happen to see around, um, which is probably a little bit different than maybe some of our own spiritual battle plans, that kind of like, well, I'll just kind of do whatever and and hope to fight the things that that I see or things I think are, are most important. Now, these guys plan and they fight, and they win, and they go to the next one. They plan, and they fight, and they win, and they go to the next one. They plan, they fight, and they win, and they go to the next one. And they don't fight two battles at once. They don't get distracted maybe by uh, the battles that uh, they know are coming in the future or the battles that maybe look more impressive or attractive. They, just, they go successively with discipline in order, battling for the purity of worship as they go south. Now, the question is, How do we battle like that? And I just started asking myself, do we even know the battles that are in front of you that you're actually supposed to fight? The major battles that are in front of you, even if you have an idea of what's coming, do you know what's in front of you right now? And I see a lot of us, including myself, making the mistake of uh, sometimes, correct me if I'm wrong, well, actually don't out loud, but (laughs) sometimes what happens for us is that we start worrying about some of the smaller fights in front of us that we probably should be ignoring because they're not actually uh, worth fighting over or about, and we're missing the ones that are actually right in front of us, the major ones that we're supposed to attack, that we're supposed to actually uh, encounter. And sometimes we're actually looking to the big battles over here and ignoring even the small ones that are in front of us. The question is, what battle actually is in front of you right now that you are supposed to fight and you're not? Because all too often we're looking forward to something else that we're supposed to fighting, distracted by something over there that we should be fighting, as opposed to what is next, what am I supposed to fight, what am I supposed to deal with, and typically it's the one we don't want to deal with that we're ignoring. And so what you see in Joshua is he takes each battle as it comes, the important ones, and because it's successfully in front of him, that's what makes it important. And he continues to fight. You also see in this that each battle is a little bit different. It's subtle, but each description in this series of battle is is a combination of different terms and, and summaries of fighting, of besieging, of capturing, and... In one battle, Joshua ends up striking a couple of them. He strikes with sword and then another, Israel captures it. And in another battle, they require fighting or some translations will say warring for an indefinite indefinite amount of time. And then another says it's besieged and taken on the second day. And the next one says, well, it's taken in one day. And there's all these different variations of how these battles play themselves out. And every battle against God's enemies in this in Joshua's context here, is different just as our battles against sin are going to be different. They're going to be unique. And what I mean to say is that when you have a sin or something that really plagues you, some kind of of stronghold in your life that is just your, and everyone's got their own, right? We all have huge trophy rooms of idols, but we all have one that kind of is in that special lit up place, the big one that we go, you know, the lights are on that one, we go, that's my major one. But even if you turn the lights down on that one, it lights everywhere else. You're like, yeah, but I got a whole room full, actually. But the question is, that one is fought uniquely, and it's even fought uniquely by different people. So the question is, what or how are you going to fight that particular battle, and what's going to find success? Because oftentimes, what you find success to defeat whatever it is that's plaguing you may not be the same way someone else did, but it's the way that you defeated, and the only similarity between you two is that you're actually both fighting. I've said this, I don't know how many times, is that we all have different fighting styles. If you look it up, there's like a thousand different fighting styles you can have. But there's some common things in all the fighting styles in that you do beat up or fight or do something to make it a fighting style. Sitting on a couch is not a fighting style. It's just not. It's like, I'm just going to wait it out until they die. You know, that kind of thing. It doesn't happen. So whether it's punching, pulling hair, kicking, you know, whether you got some kind of kung fu fighting thing, whatever it is, you need to understand that every battle that comes before you is going to be unique in the amount of time that you have to fight it in, but in how you actually have to fight. And I actually truly believe that in Christ we can conquer all sins in our life we can the Bible teaches us that sin is no longer has power over us so you can in Christ by his power conquer sin but we are not all going to conquer whatever sin we're talking about in the same way we're just not and what you see with Joshua is that he is fighting different battles different ways but he's always fighting and every battle is a little unique but the last thing you see is that each battle not only is strategic and unique but each battle is is finished it's seen to the end in other words they don't stop fighting until everyone is dead till the sin is removed completely till everything is fully devoted is the term that they will often use they don't quit the battle Um, when it doesn't go as well as the previous one or it doesn't go the same way in the same time frame, which is a lot of times how we fight. We fight one way and we go, well, it worked before. It worked for him. That just doesn't work for me. And we give up fighting rather than actually finding a new way to fight. They never give up. They continue to go. They stay in the battle for as long as it takes. Stay in the battle as long as it takes. That that right there is probably one of the keys, if not the key to sanctification. Because we hit a sin and we may even have a momentary victory or we have absolutely no victory at all and we give up. We give up will then say, man, I fought for so long, it just didn't happen, so I surrender. Okay, you're going to be destroyed then. You stay in the battle as long as it takes, even if it takes to the day you die. Paul, I'm always reminded by Paul, and I like to put in different sins for Paul in this sense, where he talks about the thorn in the flesh he has. All kinds of scholars want to say what it is, everything from bad eyes to his mother-in-law, and all kinds of like, you know, this is what it was, and like, whatever, but... Whatever it was, it was that thing that he wanted removed. That thing that, that he hated, that irritated him, that struggled him, whatever it was, it wouldn't go away and God didn't take it away. That God left it there so that he would constantly be fighting, constantly dependent upon God's grace. So I've asked guys before, I said, what if that's your addiction? Because there's some people that honestly they experience Freedom, completely, never have a desire again. And there are some people that feel like they're battling constantly forever. Winning, but still never putting down that sword and always fighting. And so they feel more like I'm in the battle constantly and I have to be. I wonder if that's even a better thing for us sometimes. Forcing you to battle, forcing you to be dependent. You stay in the battle as long as it takes. I love um, the vigilance, because this is what it reminded me of, where you think about surrendering not being an option. The vigilance of of Winston Churchill, you probably have heard the speech, that he said um, in 1941, prior to the war being over, he spoke about um, when they were fighting, and obviously um, shortly after this, uh, the United States came in the fight, and he was asked about his personal resolve in leading, because... He was not going to surrender, though it was very tempting. And part of his speech, which is misquoted several times, he said this. You never give in, you never give in, never, 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 in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Think about that in relation to sin. Never give up, never give up, never give up, never give up. Pursue Christ, pursue Christ, pursue Christ, and he'll fight for you. And they do. They never give up. And I actually believe the less you give in, the more that you fight, maybe it's a better way of saying it, the more it is easier to fight. The more you obey, the easier it is to obey. Um, Battle upon battle, you see Israel defeats every king and every people and every city, and they devote everything that breathes to God, and they do this all by God's power. And in this case, God fights for them when they're obedient. And I know you go, oh, that just feels yucky. Are you telling me that, you know, God only fights for those who are obedient? Mm, Yes and no. Yes and no. Think about the alternative just for a second. Would God fight for me when I'm disobedient? Well, he does in one sense. In this sense, Jesus only saved sinful people. He only saved sinful people. Jesus fought and died for me knowing that I was a disobedient idolater. But he made me alive. He adopted me. He gave me a new mind. He gave me a new heart. He gave me new desires so that I would be an obedient worshiper. That was his goal. That is his goal. And worshipers obey or they're not truly worshiping God. And so in verse 25, it's interesting, this is earlier in chapter 10, Joshua said this to his people, and I think we kind of read through this, do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all of your enemies against whom you fight. The implication is, you are going to be fighting, and God will fight for you as you do. So what he's saying, if you don't get on the battlefield, God's not going to fight for you. It's disobedient to get on the battlefield, so is it fair to say if I'm not going to fight, God won't fight? It might very well be. Why would you expect God to fight if you are disobedient, if you are pursuing rebellion, if you are sitting on your hands, enjoying your sin? Why would you think God would fight for you? You get to a place of, like, entitlement, which is what our culture is dedicated to. Like, well, God should fight for me. He loves me. Like, really? The very fact that you know what to do and don't do it, is concerning. But Israel's, I think, success seems to demonstrate that effort in obedience eventually turns into effortless obedience. Where it becomes easier to obey. It doesn't mean you become perfectly obedient, but it does mean that every time you say no to sin, it's easier to say no the next time. And every time you say yes to sin, it's easier to say yes. That seems to make sense. Yeah, to me too. Right? I mean, it seems like a no brainer. But I think it's the same with, with long term physical training, right? You start running a little bit, and it's easy to run a little bit further the next time. You read your Bible a little bit, it's easy to read a little bit more. You pray a little bit, it's easier to pray a little bit more. You pursue God maybe in a step, and it's easier to take three steps. That seems to make sense. It never starts with, like, you know, going from Um, sitting on the couch, can barely walk upstairs to running a marathon. But eventually, if you're committed, you get to the marathon, right? I believe anyone can run a marathon. If you watch the Iron Man, you got people on there without legs, like having heart transplants, like biggest loser winners, and they're like, yeah, I never thought I would. And I'm sitting there, yeah, you know, eating whatever, watching, going, I don't think I can. Well, I never will if I don't get off the couch. But if you start... It becomes easier, and it's never enjoyable in the beginning to obey. I'm pretty sure after an incredible battle, after marching 25 miles up the the hills to fight these guys and then to continue going, Joshua wasn't super excited about how wonderful it was going to be to be away from his family and put all his people at risk constantly. But without doubt, when he began to obey, I believe it became easy to obey successively to each city, to each city, to each city, and you'll find out they all went together to do it. And we must never forget that, why Joshua is fighting. He's not fighting out of obligation to men. Like he had a treaty with Gibeon, and you're tempted to go, well, yeah, he has to do that, right? He has to go make sure he defeats, he had this treaty. His intent was primarily to possess the land that God had commanded him to possess from the beginning. That's why he's going. It's not just about Gibeon well, so what? What does that have to do with anything? Check this out. Their plans may have been expedited, right? Without the Gibeon Treaty, they were still going to fight these battles. So their plans were expedited because of something stupid, but they were still in line with what the plan was from the beginning to preserve and establish or establish and preserve the purity of the land. That was the goal from the beginning. So if, if the book of Exodus is this picture of redemption, Joshua then is this picture of sanctification, you have the salvation of a people. We've, we've, God has bought you, has brought you out of slavery, and then they're in this, what I for my perspective, is a lifelong process of becoming a better worshiper, or translated, of loving Jesus more and loving sin less. There's the Christian life. That's what it comes down to. Enjoying God more, enjoying sin less. So God's goal for us is to establish and preserve the purity of worship in our hearts. And then this begins with Jesus saving us and then continues with Jesus changing us. Constantly moving. That's the goal. Now, unfortunately, I should say sometimes we get to pick the battles to make that happen. We can go, man, I know I need to fight this. And sometimes God, and I will say God, ordains, allows, whatever, brings those battles to us because we would never maybe pick them to begin with. What I mean is sanctification, I think I posted this on Facebook, sanctification is very inconvenient sometimes, very inconvenient. It's not like, you you know what, I'm actually thinking about writing a book on sanctification here are the chapters I have so far. Um, pain, that's chapter one. Community, So I think it always happens in community. Um, Long term, you know, those kind of things. Because that's, sanctification is painful, or I actually believe it's not sanctification. It hurts, and so we don't typically choose it. And it is that process by which God is showing us where he is not truly Lord of our life in whatever area that he is not Lord of our life the places where we're weak often, the things that are satisfying us more than he does. And as much as we want to plan our sanctification by preemptively striking every city, oftentimes those battles are come, they're brought to us by our mistakes or just directly by God. And they surprise us, but they, without question, never surprise God. They never surprise God. His goal is to make you pure, and if that means that he will use even your own sin to bring about a battle you have to fight, he will. Because his goal, plainly stated in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. What is the will of God? Your sanctification. There you go. Well, where should I do? What job should I work? Who should I? His will for you is your sanctification. That's his primary will for you. And so though we're justified by Jesus' work once, we are continually sanctified. And as long as we're alive, as long as we're alive, know that we will hate as we shouldn't and we will not love as we should. Until we die, we will be at war with sin that cannot, it cannot, it cannot ultimately condemn us, but it will always plague us until we're dead. And so we can never stop battling. It will never be convenient. It will never feel like we are ultimately victorious like we've arrived. And if you get to a point where you're like, I've arrived, you're prideful, there you go, you didn't arrive. Sin is, sin is dangerous. Now check out verse 33. This is, this is one of the things you're like, wait a second, okay? What happens when we stop short of fighting? What if we, what if we don't go all the way in fighting? You see, verse 33 is interesting because in the middle of this list of battles is a city named Gezer just west of Gibeon. And apparently, the king, if we read it carefully, the king of Gezer decided to come and help Lachish. So they're not at Gezer. He comes out of his city, takes his army, and goes up to help Lachish. And there's an account of the defeat of the king and his army, but there's never an account of Israel taking the city. It says in verse 33, Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people, meaning his army, until he left none remaining. And so, though the battle was successful against the king and his army and they were defeated, they chose not to go capture the city completely. And you've got to think about this. Perhaps, you know, why would Joshua do that? Well, maybe they felt, as we maybe do when we have a little bit of victory, that, you know, Gezer wasn't a threat anymore. You know, it's just kind of a small little city. It's not really that big a deal. I mean, it's basically defeated. Powerless. It's not going to do anything. But what you see in Joshua later, in Joshua 16, verse 10, and then in Judges chapter 1, a little city named Gezer that crops up. And it becomes one of the main cities where the Israelites failed to dislodge the Canaanites. And where idolatry becomes to infect the land because of a city that they didn't wipe out. What do you get from that? There ain't no little cities. There's no little compromises. You go, well, that's not that big a deal. It's just a little sin. That little sin that you think you don't have to fight for, God felt it necessary enough to send Jesus to die for. That little sin. There are no compromises. There are no sins that like, oh, just a little drop of poison won't hurt you. Right? We, I believe, we, we can't, we cannot, and the Bible says we cannot ever be perfect in ourselves, but we must be vigilant in pursuing Christ's perfection. We must be vigilant because even the smallest sins have consequences. And I realize it begins to be like, well, you're not going to be perfect. I'm, trying to, I'm not trying to make this works based system. The, uh, the antithesis or the other dangerous alternative, the other ditch on the side of the road is like, I'm not going to fight at all because Jesus has done everything. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I agree with that. But he's also called us to fight. And though we might not start well, we have to finish well because sin never takes a vacation. It's never sleeping. I think Proverbs 6.10 is a, is a verse that you've heard but in regards to sin, think about this. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And certainly talking largely about work, but just consider that in terms of sin, where you begin to relax. And this shouldn't lead us, I don't think, to a place where we're despairing, like, oh, I'm scared to sin and all I don't believe that. It just should move us to hold on to the cross that much more tightly And we've heard it say that, you know, hey, you need to pick your battles. And I think that's probably true with some things like parenting, but it's never true with sin. Ever. True with sin. If sin is present, it has to be fought against until it's destroyed. Until the sin city, if you will, that stronghold, is conquered and submitted to the lordship of Jesus. Because cities produce things. Cities have influence in your life. Strongholds that are established, will impact the way you live and the way you think and how you feel. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about the importance of this spiritual battle. and He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds or cities. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when our obedience is complete. I mean, just that phrase, for me, it's often despairing, but I trust that Christ did it, and so I rely on His work, but as I fight, I do that. Taking every thought captive to Christ, how are you doing with that? I mean, I, I've often said it, it's like, how many people sin when they walk in the church door? You know, the thought process. Like, my guess is that 99.9% of us has sinned since we've been here. That's how pervasive sin is. And so our battle is never, ever done. Let's close it out in verse 40 to 42. It says this, summarizing the whole southern campaign. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negeb, and the low land and the slopes and all their kings, and he left none remaining. But devoted to destruction all that breed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, and as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So we'll close with, with this awesome picture of, of how to battle we see the victory um, of the southern part of Canaan, what it actually required for them to actually accomplish it. And here's what I think it required. You see it all in here. Uh, verse 42 says that Joshua defeated all these kings and their land at one time. Now, the immediate kind of reaction to that when we read that is that they did like one campaign and it lasted a couple of days and they wiped out these seven cities in one shot. And that's not what it actually means. If you... Uh, You don't need to turn back because it will be on the board. But in Exodus, when Moses was looking forward to this eventual conquest in the land, he talked about how long it would take. In Exodus 23, he says some pretty crazy things. And you wonder if some of the battles actually literally look like this. But in verse 27 of chapter 23 in Exodus, he says, in speaking about how long the battle would take, speaking for God, I should say, so God speaking, I will send my terror before you and will throw them into confusion, all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all the enemies turn their backs to you, and I will send hornets before you. That would be awesome to see, right? I will send hornets before you, which will drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. Because you really like one campaign, you think, man, they just wiped it out. I'm gonna defeat whatever sin I fight against. Not necessarily the first day. In other words, this didn't happen in one day, this one campaign wasn't just that quick, it wasn't one week, it wasn't even one year, it was at least that. These battles maybe took each individually months, weeks. Years And you see the whole possession of the land took many years. That is sanctification. That is the lifelong process of growth. It is not overnight or very rarely is with particular things. It is a lifelong meat grinder is what it is. And the truth is, just because you choose, which I implore and pray that we all do, whatever is plaguing us and whatever cities that we need to defeat, Just because, though, you choose to start fighting doesn't mean that you're not going to get your nose broken and your butt bruised for a long time. It might mean you're battling for many, many days, for many weeks, for many years. You can't just overnight become some awesome kung fu fighting stud. You can't. You can't just become an athlete overnight. You know what? I'm running a marathon tomorrow. You will die, okay? You just, it's not going to happen. You can't become a farmer and go, you know what? Planting crops. And it's like there. Those are the images that Paul uses, and we go, yeah, I'm going to be an athlete and run. Okay, now you got to get in shape. It takes a long time. It takes discipline. Fighting battles takes discipline. And even if obedience becomes easier, that doesn't mean that the battle's do. Each fight is hard, and each race is difficult, and each crop is hard work to bring about. But you can do it. It just takes time. So it takes discipline, and it took them discipline. But also, and as I said it before, um, it does matter how we fight. And I'm not talking about the skills, you know, in that kind of image. Verse 42 also says that Joshua captured, but the Lord God fought. God was always at the center of the fighting. And so without the gospel, without the gospel at the center of your fight, victory is going to be short-lived, if it's even victory at all. Now here's what I mean. You have to do more than just not sin. You can't just like I'm just gonna not sin and white knuckle it and just resist. That's not enough. It's not enough. That is why there is a crucifixion and a resurrection. You can't just like okay, sin's gone. I'll resist and I'll just like hide myself away from everything and put up walls and become a really good legalist. That's not going to happen. You will not succeed. You have to pursue joy and satisfaction and worship in the true God. You can't just resist false gods. That is where the gospel comes to real life. The fight for sanctification takes place on two two battlefronts at the same time. Fleeing from the lies of sin that I believe very easily entangle us as we believe its promises, its false promises... And fighting to believe and be satisfied with the promises of God's truth. Fighting for joy in those things. And I believe it's only possible, as I've said before, through trusting God to fight for you as you follow him. But it's got to be a double battlefront fight. You and I are really bad fighters. We're bad. But Jesus is like the best ninja ever made, okay? He was never made. But he is a warrior. And if you and not Jesus is at the center of your fight, what'll happen is you'll begin to fight the wrong battles, or maybe even some of the right ones, but they'll be apart from him, and you'll be a step closer to self righteousness. You'll either despair because you can't win and you're feeling so bad that you're not like doing well, or you'll become prideful because you are. And both of those will be away from Christ, who actually has already won the battle for you. So you must come to a place where we believe that, that though you can fight, you can never have victory apart from Christ. That's where we have to be. There are many good Pharisees that have learned to fight very well, and they're not going to ever be victorious. Discipline, without question you need to fight with God at the center, but I think verse 43 is what hit me most, and I will actually close on this, and that is, it says, all Israel returned with Joshua. All Israel returned with him. And if all Israel returned, that means that all Israel battled the entire time together. And that's a beautiful picture of what I believe sanctification requires, which is community. We are not and should not try to be Rambos. We are built to fight as soldiers in a platoon together, not as mercenaries in some kind of one-man army. God has called us as his church, a church full of soldiers to fight for and with one another. Gospel community, I believe, is the means of grace at the very heart of God's character. God, by nature, is a community, and he's put us together in a community to fight. And if you talk to some of the men in who are battling together with purity, I can guarantee you almost to the man that their success in conquering sin began in a completely different way when they decided to step into community with fellow brothers to fight for them. Sometimes that's encouragement. Sometimes that's a good kick in the butt, but it's there. You can't be a stinking Rambo, but we certainly try, thinking we can be a one-man army or one-woman army. You can't. You need community to fight. And I'll close with a verse out of Philippians, which is maybe a weird verse to close out of, but this is Paul writing from prison and it's kind of obscure but i like how he identifies his brothers and my hope is they will all learn to speak of this way about one another philippians 2:25 says this i thought it necessary to send to you epaphroditus my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier My brother, some family, fellow worker building together, fellow soldier fighting together. When you take communion at our church, it is supposed to be a family meal. As you live your life of sanctification, it's intended to become in community. That's where it's supposed to take place. God intended to be put this family together to be built together as a dwelling place for a spirit, for an army that fights together for him and for one another. That is where true purity of worship can occur. I'm not convinced sanctification can, can, can even occur outside of community. However big or small that community might be, maybe that can take place, but I, in Scripture it seems like everything is so communal focused. So I pray That as we go forward as a church, we have a leadership meeting today talking about all kinds of things we're going to do. You're going to see the best thing you can do to propel the gospel work in this place is to be part of this community. Whether you do anything or not, it's to actually become a soldier and not just a citizen watching the army fight.